Turning your Bibles, please, to Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs chapter 21. Verses 9 to 19. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 9 to 19. Page 933. 933. Uh, in the Bibles here provided. And uh, first, we're going to pray together. Um, so as, as, as I was reading uh, this morning, I, um, I was reminded uh, from, from uh, Acts, you know, about the Berean believers, how uh, the reason they were more noble-minded was because they were eager to receive God's word. And that's my prayer for me, uh, that uh, I would I would be a person who is eager to receive God's word, um, not just uh, not just study it, not just analyze it, not just look at it and and um, and see what it says and, and and understand its meaning, but I would be eager to receive it because um, in, in receiving that word we are we're really we're really doing this right. What we just saying, who else we turn to? We're turning to Jesus, and 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 Jesus has revealed Himself in His word and. And uh, we want to know him. So let, let me just pray that for you as well as for me, that uh, we would all be eager to receive his words so that we would, we would know Jesus. Lord Jesus, where else would we turn but to you? You have the words of life. You are the God eternal, the son who came to this world, revealed yourself, made yourself known to us, spoke words of life. And um, uh, we want to hear those words today. We want to we receive those words and, uh, and uh, be, be changed by them. We want to we experience through your words your presence in our lives. And... Um, be encouraged, be strengthened, be, be emboldened to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. So I ask this for your people, that you would work in us by your spirit today for your own glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever feel like um, you live in an, an upside-down world? Not, not maybe not always, but, but sometimes that you live in this world that's just kind of upside-down, that you want to do what's right, but wrong seems to prevail. Um, you, you want to respect authority, but uh, you see the powerful abuse their position. You want to be content with what God has given to you, but, but you see that the rich flaunt their wealth. You, you want to be humble, but you see self-promoters all the time gaining in, in influence. You want to do, um, you want to, um, uh, do good, but you see how the religious often mask over their religious deeds. Um, might makes right. Money buys happiness. Haughtiness brings success, hypocrisy uh, hides duplicity. You live in this world where, where everything sometimes seems to be just so upside down, and, and you say, well, why bother? 
Why should we live our lives uncompromisingly right side up in this kind of world? One answer to that question is in this passage in front of us, Proverbs chapter 21, verses 9 to 19. It says this, Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. The wicked crave evil. Their neighbors get no mercy from them. When a mocker is punished, the simple gain wisdom. By paying attention to the wise, they get knowledge. The righteous one takes note of the house of the wicked and brings the wicked to ruin. Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. A gift given in secret soothes anger, and a bribe concealed in the cloak pacifies great wrath. When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Whoever strays from the path of prudence comes to rest, comes to rest in the company of the dead. Whoever loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and olive oil will never be rich. The wicked become a ransom for the righteous and the unfaithful for the upright. Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. One of the themes of these verses is the idea of reversal. So the wicked who desire evil come to ruin. And in the Hebrew, same word for evil and ruin. They come to ruin. Those who shut their ears are not answered. They're not heard. Unjust evildoers are terrified of justice. Lovers of rich pleasures become poor. The unfaithful are ransom for the faithfully upright. So there's this, this idea of reversal in this, in this passage. In, in other words, this upside-down world will be made right-side-up. So, so, so therefore, we should persevere in God's ways because one day that which is, that seems so upside down, that, that this world will be made right side up. Be assured that those who walk in God's ways are walking on right paths. That's the theme of this passage. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. But, but you're going to say, what about verse 9 and 19? What about the start and the end of this passage? How how are these two proverbs about a quarrelsome wife relevant to that theme? And so often these verses are taken as an exhortation to wives. You know, don't nag your husbands. That's the, that's the, 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 I I shouldn't look at anybody before I say that. Um, um, It, it, it is the common um, interpretation and uh, application of that verse. And a thoughtful preacher might, might quickly add that husbands also should not nag their wives, right? So the, the, the point is, the, the focus is on a strained relationship in the home, and the message is usually about how to build a strong marriage. And that's how these verses are usually applied uh, at, but, but having said that, right, uh, I don't know of any preacher who would go so far as to actually, to actually counsel anybody to separate, to go live in the desert, to go live on the, the, the corner of, of, uh, of their roof, even if their spouse is quarrelsome and nagging. And so as I, as I was thinking about this, um, 
I began to wonder, what if, what if these verses aren't mainly about marriage? And um, here, are three, here are three things that, I, uh, that kind of went through my mind. Number one, first, these are better than Proverbs. Uh, and, and there's about, someone has counted like 19 of these better than sayings in, uh, in Proverbs. And what these better than sayings um, talk about are, are, are values. They talk about values. What's, what's important? What's, what's good? What's, what's, what's right? And so you have, you know, for example, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. So it's better to, to fear God than to have great wealth. Um, better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Right? So, so better, better to, be, to be lowly in spirit. Even if, you're, even if you're oppressed, better to be lowly in spirit than to have lots sharing plunder and be a proud person. And so these are value statements. These better than... Proverbs. So that was the first thing that, that I, I thought about. The second thing I thought, thought about was that this word translated, uh, this word translated um, nagging in verse 19, um, you know, better live in a desert than a, with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. That word nagging has to do with being angry. It has to do with uh, being an agitator. It's not so much fault finding, which is what we associate with nagging, it's this person who is, who is angry, who is who's an agitator. And, and along with the words for, for quarrelsome, it pictures a person who is contentious, whose life is marked by strife and conflict. They, they like to sow discord. And in Proverbs, this kind of angry, quarrelsome person is a foolish person, someone who, who, who devises evil, who disrupts the community to cause harm to others who is destroying the fabric of society by, by, by doing that which is hurtful, harmful to, to other people. And then the third thing that I thought about uh, as I was studying was this word share in verse, verse 9. Better to live on a corner of a house and share, a uh, corner of the roof and share a house with a quarrelsome wife. That word share um, seems to me more than just living under the same roof. That root word has the idea of being united, being joined, um, being bound together. And it suggests that the issue in this verse is not merely a wife who is quarrelsome, but a household where both husband and wife are united, are joined together uh, in a contentious spirit. That it's not just the wife. That it's both husband and wife who are who are. Um, who have this contentious spirit. They are both fools who act in concert to do evil and to undermine the social fabric of the community. And as I was thinking about it, King Ahab and Jezebel came immediately to mind. You know, King Ahab, he wants something, he can't get it, and he's moping around the house, and, um, and, and his wife comes along and devises a plot so that he can get what he wants. The Bible says of this, of the two of them, there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Never anyone like him who sold himself to do evil and then urged on by Jezebel, his wife. 
So this husband and wife, this couple, this household that is committed, united in doing that which is contentious and quarrelsome and uh, brings strife to the community. And if we put all this together, it seems to me that these verses are a lesson about values, not strictly about marriage. But it's a lesson about, um, uh, about values, and here's the value statement. It is better to have no property of your own. It is better to be pushed off to the corner of a rooftop. It is better to reside on a desolate piece of land. It is better to have no property of your own to be, than to be the head of a household that is marked by strife and conflict. Or to put it in the context of the previous verses, we might say, it is better to have no power, it is better to have no wealth, it is better to have no honor, it is maybe even better to have no religion, right? Because uh, you're an outcast in the desert. It is better to have none of those things than to lead a home characterized by evil. Why is this? Why is it better to have nothing than to buy into a value system of self-sufficiency, self-gain, self-promotion, self-righteousness? Why is it better to have nothing than to buy into that kind of value system? And verses 10 to 18 show us what happens to the wicked when God brings about judgment. It is better to live by God's values because he will bring about a great reversal. Number one, those who show no mercy will receive no mercy. Number two, those who act unjustly will fear justice. And number three, those who love wealth will end in poverty. God will bring about a reversal. And so we live, we live by his value system, even when it seems all upside down because in the end, his way will prevail. So number one, those who show no mercy will receive no mercy. Proverbs 21, verse 10. The wicked crave evil. Their neighbors get no mercy from them. Solomon here doesn't simply say that the wicked crave power or desire power. He doesn't say that they crave desire wealth or that they crave desire status. He says they desire evil itself. Someone said that, you know, we start off, we start off um, just kind of rationalizing uh, that we want this, we want that, and, but, but and we, and because, you know, we've rationalized things, we, we kind of do something that is evil, that is, that is wrong, that is wicked, that is unjust, we do something which is evil in order to get what we want, and we rationalize the way. But then what happens is um, it, 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 it stops being just, evil stops being just a means to an end. It becomes the end itself. And so at first we start, we, we do something that's wicked in order to get somewhere, but then the evil, the wickedness, becomes the end, the purpose for which we live, for which we crave. And one of the results of craving evil is that you have no concern for others. Your only focus is on getting an advantage 
over them. And so when they have a need, there's no desire to help. When, when they're um, hurting, you, you feel no compassion. When someone is down and kicked to the side of the road, there are no acts of kindness. One preacher says some people are simply mean-spirited. They laugh at the misery of others. They derive pleasure at insulting anyone. They revel in being bullies, connivers, and cheaters. To see a neighbor in need arouses spite rather than sympathy. And so this, this, this person becomes this, this, this one who craves evil and has absolutely no mercy for anybody else. And I hope most of you are thinking, you're not like that. And, and, I, and I would think as well, you know, as I look at you, I don't know all of you as, as well as, 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 as uh, maybe uh, I should, but uh, we just met or something, but, but you are not like that. Um, but here's the thing. Solomon's going to go on and remind us that we don't typically just wake up one morning and crave evil. Um, very few people are sociopaths. Don't think there's anyone in this room. I hope there's anyone in this room like that. We don't just wake up one morning and crave evil. We grow to crave evil because we get away with the small things. And uh, we don't learn from the consequences. And so verse 11 says, when a mocker is punished, the simple gain wisdom. By paying attention to the wise, they get knowledge. The simple person is someone who is still impressionable. Their heart is not hardened. They are open to instruction. A mocker, on the other hand, rejects God and his ways. They, they distort justice. They disrupt community. They are the ones who crave evil. And when a mocker is eventually called to account for their wicked actions, they remain obstinate. Right? Because they have gotten to that point where they are, they are hardened in their heart, they, they crave evil, they don't want to change. And if we aren't willing to be humbly teachable like that, that simple person, if we don't learn that we can't bully our way through people's lives, then we will grow to be like the mocker. We will have hardened hearts and we will crave evil. And for a while, it may even seem like we can get away with our self-centeredness. But God will call us to account. Verse 12, the righteous one takes note of the house of the wicked and brings the wicked to ruin. He takes note. He pays attention. He sees. God is the righteous one who sees the merciless acts of the wicked and will judge them. The merciless will not receive mercy. Those who crave evil, those who crave the ruin of others will get ruined themselves. Friends, as, as, as followers of Jesus, we we are to, by faith, see that God will reverse the standing of the wicked. And we are not to buy into a value system that is merciless and cold-hearted, 
towards the needs of those around us. Instead, but we are um, to, to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are not to be constantly looking out for our own gain, for our own good. We are to look out for each other. We are to look out for one another. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so, don't be attempt, don't be tempted to abandon God's way. Keep on persevering. On, on the path, path of mercy and, and, and grace. There is a reversal coming. The way of the wicked will not prevail. Those who show no mercy in the end will receive no mercy. But Jesus said, what did he say? Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Let us be people who are merciful. In a brutal world, in a violent world, in a world of bullies, let us be merciful. Those who act unjustly will fear justice. In the Bible, injustice is often associated with how we treat the poor. And if those who show no mercy will receive no mercy, this especially applies to how we treat, how we respond to the pleas of the poor. And we're reminded in verse 13 that whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. The cry of the poor refers to this, this anguished cry in the midst of, of acute distress. It, it's a cry for help from someone in, in urgent need of assistance. And if we do not hear, if we do not respond to such a cry because our heart is hardened by evil, the warning of this verse is that God will not hear when we cry out to him on the day of judgment. If we do not hear, God will not hear us. And the following verses suggest that the cry of the poor is because of some injustice that's been done against them. Verse 14 says, A gift given in secret soothes anger, and a bribe concealed in the cloak pacifies great wealth. There are two ways to interpret this verse. So um, some people take the anger and the wrath as something negative. And so you see this, this translation, it should be soothed, it should be pacified, because, well, anger, that's not a good thing, right? We were reminded of that last week. <laughs> anger is not a, a good thing to have. Sinful anger, right? Wrath is, is not this thing that, that's good. And so, so a gift can be given to soothe um, that... Um, uh, pacify that anger. So in a relationship, if, if someone is mad at you, a gift may smooth things over, you know, kind of like that, that old cliche of bring flowers to your wife because you had a fight, right? The, the, you bring a gift to, soothe, to smooth things over. And of course, you don't call it a bribe. Or... Um, 
If someone has offended another person and is taken to court, then a gift to the offended party may resolve the matter, somewhat like an out-of-court settlement. So if, if, if anger and wrath are, are these negative things to be pacified, then the gift is, is something that, that smooths it over, and that's one interpretation of this particular verse. The problem with that is, is that this word bribe is here. And, and bribe in Proverbs has this negative connotation. And the fact that it's concealed adds to the sense that this is something underhanded. And so I think it's better to take the anger and the wrath here as something good, something necessary. And so, for example, Proverbs 20, verse 2 talks about the wrath of the king. It refers to his role as, the, as a judge. He is supposed to rule with justice. He is supposed to hold accountable those who oppress the poor and the vulnerable. He is supposed to have wrath and anger, righteous anger, when, when uh, injustice occurs. And if that's the case, then here in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 14, we have an instance where a secret gift or a bribe is used to avert justice. It is not to soothe or pacify anger, but it is to subdue and overturn righteous judgments. And once more, we're told that God will turn right side up what is upside down in this world. This subverting of justice, this perverting of justice, this, this um, uh, working against the, the person who is vulnerable, who is needy, who has is, who is no standing in society, this working to take advantage by, by um, perverting the justice system, God will turn that around. God will reverse it. Maybe not right now, in our lifetime, but one day he will bring justice. And those who pursue a life of unjust advantage will experience a reversal. Verse 15, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Justice will triumph in the end. Particularly God's justice will prevail, and those who love him will rejoice. Sadly, our world is still a world filled with injustice. A world where injustice seems to prevail. But when Christ returns, we will see all injustice eradicated. And when that time comes, those who perpetrate injustice will truly tremble at his justice. God will return their evil on their own heads. And so we live by God's value system. We wait for that day when justice will come. But in that waiting, right, this verse speaks to, to our lives right now. It, it says something to us about how we are to live in the, in the present. If we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, then we will desire to see justice done. That means we need to act justly ourselves. Don't defraud people. Don't cheat people. Don't take advantage of people. 
As one commentary puts it, in our everyday exchange of money, goods, and words, we can ask ourselves, have I been fair? Is this deal straight or is it crooked? So in our own lives, we want to live justly. We want to do that which is just. We don't want to take advantage of people. And then beyond that, we should also seek justice for others. And that's, that's far, far more complex. But a starting point is to do the opposite of verse 13. We need to open our hearts. We need to open our ears to the cries of the poor. And to open our hearts. See the needs of those who are oppressed. And say, God, what can we do? What do you want me to do? How can I advocate for those who are in need, who are oppressed? Those who act unjustly will one day fear justice. Thirdly, those who love wealth will end in poverty. Proverbs 21, verse 16. Whoever strays from the path of prudence comes to rest in the company of the dead. The path of prudence links back to verse 11. The person who prudently pays attention to the ways of the wise will grow a life of wisdom. So the, the the person, the path of prudence is, is that paying attention to the wise and getting knowledge. Um, but when we stray from that path, we leave the way of life and we set foot on the way of death, which ends in the company of the dead. So when we stray from the path of, of prudence, from the path of, of, of wisdom that leads to life, we come to rest in the company of the dead. Now you may wonder, don't we all die? Don't we all die? Don't we all end up in the company of the dead? And I was reminded as I was going through this um, by one of the commentaries, there are two kinds of dead. There are two kinds of dead. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 26. Just a few, um, going over to the right a little bit, Isaiah chapter 26. Um, and uh, it's on page 1007 in the church Bibles here. There are two kinds of dead. Isaiah 26, verse 14 and 19 speak of them. First of all, there are those of whom Isaiah says in, in Isaiah 26, verse 14, they are now dead and they live no more. Their spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. And then go down to verse 19. There are those of whom Isaiah says, verse 19, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Those who stray from the way of prudence 
will come to rest among the dead who live no more, whose spirits do not rise. But those who remain on the way of prudence will come to rest among the, among the dead who will live, whose bodies will rise. And so, and so uh, Solomon is exhorting us, don't stray from this, from this path of, of prudence, from God's path. If you, if you have, if you have strayed from it, turn back. Turn back today. Return to that path of prudence. Or if you've never set foot on his path, turn to Jesus today and he will lead you in God's way. He died, he rose again bodily so that all who put their faith in him will one day live eternally in resurrection bodies. We will live though we die. And so turn to Christ. Don't stray from the path. If you have, you've never set foot on that path, get on that path. Get back to that path of walking in the way of prudence. One of the ways we're seduced into straying from that path is by the love of pleasure and wine and oil. One of the ways we're seduced by the path. One of the, one of the ways that Satan comes along and, and, and he says, you know what? This is not the path of life. And we're seduced away from it is by the love of pleasure and oil and wine. Verse 17. Whoever loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and olive oil will never be rich. Listen carefully. Pleasure or joy, right? We usually have a negative connotation of pleasure. We have a positive connotation of joy. Same word here. Pleasure or joy is not a bad thing. Oil and wine are not bad things. Psalm 104 verse 15 says they are gifts from God that gladden the heart and make the face shine. So it's not a sin to have pleasure, joy, and wine, and oil. It is a sin, however, to love these things apart from God, apart from the way of wisdom, apart from the path of prudence. It is idolatry to want these things apart from God. Those who chase after pleasure, those who chase after wine and oil and the wealth that buys these things, those who chase after these things will end in poverty. They will not be rich. What does that mean? They will not be rich. It's common to take this verse as financial counsel. And so loving pleasure and wine and oil is understood as overindulgence or pursuing a life of luxury. And so the application is don't live beyond your means. The application is don't, pay, don't buy what you can't afford. Don't live a consumer lifestyle. And listen, that's all sound financial advice. But this verse is more than a lesson about how to handle your finances. 
It is a warning about spiritual and eternal poverty for those who love money and what it buys. This, pro this proverb is a pithy way of saying what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Don't desire to get rich. Don't love money. Don't be eager for riches. Why? Because those who love material wealth now will be spiritually poor for eternity. And Proverbs 21 verse 18 continues to drive home this theme of reversal. The wealthy become poor. Um, this, this idea of reversal it continues to drive that home using the imagery of money. The wicked become a ransom for the righteous and the unfaithful for the upright. In the ancient world, a ransom was compensation paid to free a prisoner. And perhaps the, the prisoner had, a, had to pay a fine. Or perhaps they had to serve a sentence. Or maybe even they were facing execution. But a ransom could be paid. Obviously, a ransom for life would be bigger than a ransom for a fine. But a ransom could be paid to free that prisoner. And the situation imagined in verse 18 is, this, is that of a righteous person facing conviction for an unjust um, uh, accusation. Some, some plot has been devised against them by the wicked and they have been brought up on charges and they've been found guilty and they are facing some kind of penalty um, because the wicked have plotted against them. But here's the reversal the wicked person will instead be found guilty so that they effectively become the ransom that sets the prisoner free. Right? You watch crime shows where, where a person um, uh, plots against another person, that person goes to jail, and the guilty person is found, the, the guilty person is found out, and the, the innocent person is set free. That's what this verse is, is talking about. The wicked will receive their just reward, and the righteous will be set free. Because there will be a reversal. And as followers of Jesus, we are not to buy into the wealth value system of the world. What is more important to us? It's not that wealth is wrong, but, but to go back to verse 19, it is better to have nothing, to have no property, to live in a desolate wilderness than to be a wicked fool who is urged on by his equally foolish wife to pursue money and power at the expense of others. And so instead of being a fool, we are to buy into God's wealth value system, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share because therein is true eternal treasure. In that, there is true treasure.
those who show mercy will not be shown mercy. Those who are unjust will fear justice. Those who crave wealth will become poor. There is a reversal coming. How do we know that? How do we know there's a reversal coming? How do we know that God will turn right side up what is upside down? The reason we know that God will bring about a reversal is because Jesus Christ reversed places with us. We know it's coming because Jesus Christ reversed places with us. And there's actually a teaser in this passage of what Jesus did and will do. You see, as Christians, it is almost impossible for us to read Proverbs 21, verse 18, and not see that Jesus reversed it. Jesus turned it inside out. Jesus flipped it put that verse on its head. He, he took that verse and he, and, he, and, he, and he flipped it. What does Proverbs 21 verse 18 say? Again, the wicked become a ransom for the righteous and the unfaithful for the upright. But what did Jesus, the righteous one, do? What did Jesus, the righteous one, do? He became the ransom for us, the wicked. What did Jesus, the upright one, do? He became the ransom for us, the unfaithful. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried the cross. Love so amazing Love so amazing. Jesus Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, the rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven, Jesus Messiah, Lord of all. He took what you and I deserve, God's judgment, so that we could be free and have his life in us the just for the unjust. That's how we know that he will come again one day and make all things right. So am I going to live life according to the world's value system or am I going to live life like Jesus in accordance with the wisdom of God? May we be uncompromisingly committed to live according to the values of King Jesus. The rescue for sinners. The ransom from heaven. Let's pray. Give us courage, Lord. Give us strength. When we're beaten down, Pick us up again when um, we are at the end of our rope. Hold us. 
hold of us. Keep reminding us. Yes, this world is upside down. Keep reminding us that your right side up world is coming. And help us to persevere. Help us to be people who are merciful, compassionate. Help us to be people who are just. Help us to be people who are generous, overflowing. As you've been all of that to us. Thank you. We praise you, we worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.